Any other Daves? <laughs> I think there's at least four on staff at Word Partners. Um, my name is Jonathan, David's friend. Yeah. I got a lot of friends. Um, thank you for, uh, for having me here. I, I, I want to say thank you as well, just to echo uh, what, what uh, Dave shared, uh, for a couple reasons. One, thank you for your continued support of Word Partners. And um, I thank you for giving many, many years ago Doug Dunton to Word Partners. He has been a huge mentoring influence and impact in my life. And is, uh, God has used uh, greatly in, in shaping me to do what I'm doing now. Um, I want to also thank you for uh, a woman named uh, Cindy McFarlane, who you have supported in Togo for a long time and is now living in Dearborn, Michigan. That's where I was born and have grown up. And it's where, for the last uh, nine years, we were planting a church. Uh, after coming back from Lebanon, we planted a church in Dearborn, Michigan. And Cindy came and relocated there and has been a part of our church and has been a huge asset to the ministry, has a huge heart for children and for refugees and for this population in Dearborn, which is uh, probably the most densely settled Muslim population in the United States. And uh, so thank you for her. Um, and, um, and, and thank you for your continued support, board partners. So that's what I'm doing now. I've, I've transitioned from being that church planting pastor in 2022 to being full-time uh, with Word Partners. And uh, because of our love and experience uh, in the Middle East, that's, that's our focus. That's the region we're focusing on. And uh, so it's a great pleasure to be with you here. Uh, I've been given the assignment of preaching the entirety of the message of First and Second Samuel. <laughs> well, let me begin uh, by just sharing a little bit about my childhood. Uh, no, I'm just... <laughs> Actually, I'm going to. When I was a boy, I didn't like to read. Didn't like to read. My mother was a teacher, my grandmother was a teacher, and it drove them crazy. I didn't like to read. I found it difficult. I found it boring. But when I was about 11 years old, my mom encouraged me to take a copy of The Hobbit, J.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, with me on a family vacation. And I read it. I read the whole thing. And then I went home and I wanted the rest of it. I wanted to read the three other volumes of The Lord of the Rings. I was hooked. Just hooked. I had discovered the entrancing power of a well-told epic story. A story of the great struggle between good and evil and light and darkness. A story of the rise and fall of great kings and kingdoms. A story riddled with fierce and bloody battles. A story heightened with poetry and song. A story of small, seemingly insignificant people like hobbits rising to heroic acts that bring down formidable foes. Have you ever read a book that you just couldn't put down? You just had to read the next page. You had other things you were supposed to be doing, but you just had to read more. You couldn't put it down. What is it about such epic sagas, such well-told stories that hold our attention, inspire us, maybe even inspire us to live differently, leave us coming back for more and more? I think it's this. 
I think that such well-told stories and these epic stories, they retell and tell and retell again humanity's story, our stories. In the stories that we live out, we, we recognize that in the stories that are well told. We see a connection. We identify with characters in the story. And our stories are born out of God's story. The context of my story and your story is the story God has told and is telling. All of human history is couched in, directed by, and on the trajectory of God's story. I don't know if we ever think about it that way. And stories, it's the, it's the primary way that God has spoken to us through stories. Now, the Bible is made up of many kinds of literature. We find narrative, we find law, wisdom, poetry, letters, apocalyptic visions. But all of these different kinds of literature, they, they all serve together within the overall, overarching narrative to tell the epic saga of God our King. In First and Second Samuel, we read an important part of this epic saga. All the elements that we see in Tolkien's classic are also seen in First and Second Samuel. It's a story of a great struggle between good and evil, light and darkness. It's a story of a rise and fall of kings who come from humble and insignificant beginnings, yet heroically defeat formidable foes. It's a story riddled with fierce and bloody battles. It's a story heightened and framed with poetry and song. And all of this, all of it, is couched in the story of God, our great king, who provides and preserves his earthly king to save an undeserving people by promising a forever king. That's what the story is about. Now, to tell this epic story, First and Second Samuel, God has led the author to frame it with three poems. In the very beginning, in chapter 2, we see Hannah's prayer song, and it's prophetic. And then we see David's song of deliverance from Saul at the end. It's placed at the end of the story in chapter 22 of 2 Samuel. And in the middle of the story, there's another song. It's David's song of lament over Saul and Jonathan, his beloved friend, when they died in battle. And with the placement of these poetic songs at the beginning and the middle of the end, the author's pointing us in a direction. He's telling us what to pay attention to as the story unfolds. And so, this morning, we're going to walk through this story, watching how those main themes of Hannah's song at the beginning are worked out in this great epic saga called First and Second Samuel. Now, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. That's what we're going to read the whole story through this, the lens of this poem. 
Now, just to set it up for us, uh, this is a song sung by a woman named Hannah. Hannah was one of two wives married to a man named Elkanah. Hannah was childless, so she had no son. That meant she had no heir. Very important in those days. But in her distress, as she prays relentlessly to God for a son, God answers her. He gives her a son. Hannah names the son Samuel, which means God hears or God has heard. Right? God heard her prayer. And she dedicates him as a little boy to the ministry of the Lord in the tabernacle, in that tent, where God's presence would come over the ark of the covenant, where God would manifest his dwelling among his people. She dedicates him to the service in, in that portable temple. And God's presence would appear there. But we're told later in this, in this story that the word of God was rare in those days. So in response to God's goodness to her, Hannah worshiped the Lord with this prayer song in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, as she dedicated her son Samuel to the service of the Lord. Let's hear the word of God for the people of God. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the, of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. May God give us his blessing with his word. Let's just pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, we ask that we, now that we have read your word and we're going to hear it explained, uh, exposited, preached, Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts and our ears of our hearts that we might hear and see what you have for us today. Father, this is the process by which you transform us. We hear your word. We receive it, and we are transformed, and we go and live differently. Lord, would you make us more today 
like Jesus. Father, it is my prayer every time we open the word that that we would not leave this place the same way we came in, but having heard your word, we would be more like Jesus as we go out. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Hannah, uh, in her day, there was a lot of wickedness going on. And, and we read back in, in Judges, the last, very last verse of Judges, the, about the times that Hannah lived. And it says that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the very last verse of Judges. And this first part of the story, we're calling uh, God provides a king. That's the first part. There is no king in Israel, but that's what God's going to do. He's going to provide a king. And in Hannah's day, the head priest in Shiloh was in Shiloh. The tabernacle was in Shiloh, not Jerusalem in that day, but in Shiloh. Jerusalem was still a Philistine city. And the uh, head priest was Eli. Now, he had two priest sons. And these sons were wicked, and they used their positions of power for personal gain and immorality. They were literally desecrating the presence of the Lord. These were wicked times, and Eli's sons were wicked men. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. And Eli, he was kind of spineless. He wasn't doing much more than slapping his sons on the wrist. So here at the outset of the story, we see a stark contrast between Hannah, on the one hand, who who is powerless in her situation, and she uh, is is feeling the the pressure of having a child, her her, uh, uh, competition, let's say, the other wife of of Hannah is having children, she is not. She is powerless to, to change her situation. We have her on the one side, and she's giving her beloved son, Samuel, to the service of the Lord as she receives her son. And then on the other hand, we have this, this the, the wickedness of those who are in power, taking everything that's good and sacred and using it for their own gain. But God will have the last word. God promises to bring Eli's household to a just And And this is actually just the kind of thing that Hannah has just sung about. She sings praise to God for raising her and people like her up and for breaking down the proud, breaking down the arrogant and the mighty. And in praying this way, she forecasts what God will do over and over again throughout this story. God exalts the powerless, and he topples the powerful. And he does it to show that he alone, as king, is the one who is orchestrating the story. In verses 1 and 2, Hannah prays, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides. Literally, my mouth is enlarged against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. What does it mean that Hannah's horn is exalted in the Lord? In The Lord, the horn, kind of like the horn of a ram, 
It was a symbol of strength and victory. Probably because it was used as a trumpet to communicate in war. A horn blast would announce victory over the enemy, that the good guys have been delivered. And, interestingly, in 1 Samuel, the horn was also used as a container for anointing oil. Samuel would anoint David from a horn of, it was like a container for oil, and he would anoint David king with that horn. Now, Hannah uses the imagery of the horn again at the end of her prayer when her song actually turns to the future. The the tense turns to the future tense, and, and she prophesies. She says in verse 10, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. I mean, she's talking about eschatological future now. He will give strength to his king, and exalted and exalt the horn of his anointed. What king? <laughs> what king? Hannah has prophetically announced the coming of the Lord's king, his anointed over Israel at a time when there still yet is not a king in Israel. But he's coming. His advent is on the horizon, she says. God will anoint his king from a horn. And give his anointed strength and victory, a victory blast from the horn to announce deliverance from his enemies. And then we read at the very end of the story, in chapter 22 of 2 Samuel, that David uses the very same imagery in his song of deliverance from Saul. It's placed at the end of this great epic story. He sings in in chapter 22, in verse uh, 2 and 3, he says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Notice similarities with Hannah's imagery as well. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation. And then David sings at the end in verse 49, You exalted, this is to the Lord, You exalted me above those who rose against me and delivered me from men of violence. So the whole story is framed by Hannah's song of prophecy in the beginning and David's song of deliverance at the end. Hannah sings of an exalted king when there isn't a king yet. And at the end, we hear David, God's chosen king, sing that indeed, yes, God has exalted and delivered me. God's chosen king. And in this way, Hannah's prophecy then launches us, her whole song launches us into the rest of of the Samuel saga. A story of God's exaltation of the lowly and the breaking down of the mighty as he preserves his earthly king in order to deliver his undeserving people. And Hannah sees her own circumstances as just a small part of God's epic story and as a reflection of God's story of the people of Israel. In verse five, she sings, the barren has born seven. That's a reference to her situation. God has given her a son, though she was barren, like Sarah, Abraham's wife, like Rachel, Jacob's wife, like Rebecca, Isaac's wife. She's a part of this big story. Like all these women before her, Hannah sees her own grief and relief as part of of a glorious pattern of God's hand at work in Israel's story and in her own story. Today, I wonder 
if perhaps you are consumed by your own story, maybe consumed with grief, maybe disappointments that have happened in your story. Taking our cue from Hannah here, our hearts our hearts begin to be transformed when we realize that our circumstances are a small part, not insignificant, but a small part of God's great story. Hannah remembered the way that God does things, how he wields his sovereignty over all circumstances because it all belongs to him. The pillars of the earth are his. He created it all. And he's the one who causes these great reversals in history and in her life. She says, the Lord is a God of knowledge by whom actions are ways. He knows the heart and what the heart produces in our lives. The Lord kills and brings to life in verse 6. The Lord makes poor and makes rich, brings low and exalts. It is the Lord It is the Lord alone who stands behind not only every great turn of redemptive history, but also every seemingly insignificant event. May the Lord give us eyes to see how our stories are couched in God's great story. It's the Lord's story. It's the Lord who closed Hannah's womb. It says that several times in chapter 1. And it was the Lord who answered her desperate prayer. It was the Lord who made the word rare in those days. He was the one who was going to speak if he was going to make it common. But he's also the one in his own time who raised up Samuel as the last great judge over Israel, letting none of his words fall to the ground, it says in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel. The Lord is the mighty king who was enthroned, it says in chapter 4, above the cherubim, sculpted into the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, where his word, the words, uh, the Ten Commandments were kept, and where his presence would come behind that veil in the tabernacle. And it's the Lord who let that Ark be captured by the Philistines in a battle. And it's in that same battle that the Lord brought down Eli's wicked sons to their just end. He was orchestrating it all. It was the Lord alone who who was rejected by his people when they demanded a king like all the other nations, when they had him as king. And it was the Lord who gave Israel Saul As a king, he gave them what they wanted, a man just like the kings of the nations, lacking God's heart, lacking obedience, lacking discernment, lacking the the waiting upon the Lord and his timing to do things. So it was the Lord who rejected disobedient King Saul and afflicted him with an evil spirit. It was from God. It was the Lord who chose seemingly insignificant David from among his brothers to rule in Saul's place with justice and righteousness. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, we learn in 1 Samuel 16. It was the Lord in the valley of Elah who took that overlooked shepherd boy and struck down mighty Goliath, the giant, with one smooth Stone. That was a miraculous kill. For, as David cried out at that time, the battle belongs to the Lord. 
It was the Lord who delivered David from Saul as he chased him all over Judah and Philistia trying to kill him. And just as Hannah sang, the Lord kills and brings to life. The Lord gave Saul to be killed in a bloody battle with the Philistines at the end of 1 Samuel. My friends, this story, as you go through it in the months to come, will bring you uncomfortably face-to-face with any lingering reluctance you may have to ascribe all authority and sovereignty to the Lord. He is your king. Or should I put it in a question? Is he your king? That brings us to the second part of the story where God promotes and preserves his king. This story will cause us to reflect on the state of our own hearts. For example, when we hear David's lament at the beginning of 2 Samuel over Saul and Jonathan, crying out, How the mighty have fallen! And he is weeping over the death, not only of his beloved friend Jonathan, but also of Saul. Right, Saul? who tried to pin him to a wall twice with a spear. Saul, who chased him all over the place trying to kill him. He's lamenting over Saul with heartfelt sorrow, lamenting. Would you and I do that? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm cut to the heart every time I read that. I don't know that I would have the same heart of mercy for someone who tried to kill me for years and years and years, even though I knew I was the anointed king. Now, don't misunderstand me. We don't want to put David way up on a pedestal, right? He was far from perfect. Just as Saul had no regard for God's word, there was a time in David's life where he also, as Nathan the prophet put it, despised the word of the Lord. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he murdered her husband, Uriah. You say, well, what's the difference between Saul and David? I mean, is, is, David's, is Saul's worse any worse, any, is sin any worse than David's sin? Not really. What's the difference? I think the difference is this. Where Saul made excuses and, and justified his sin, put a spin on it to make it look like it was a good thing, David, when he was confronted by Nathan for his sin, he repented. What do you do when you're confronted by God's word about your sin? The one whom God has delivered and preserves is the one who receives God's word, acknowledges his or her sin, and repents. But the story doesn't end there. Though there would be unspeakable fallout, consequences, and rebellion in David's house, in David's family, and in the kingdom because of his sin, God still fulfilled Hannah's prophecy. God delivered and preserved David. God breaks David's adversaries to pieces. He gives strength to his king. He exalts the horn of his anointed. That brings us into the third part of the story we want to focus on. God promises an eternal forever king. That's how God does this. By 2 Samuel 5 and 6, God has established David and his rule over all of Israel. There was years where he was in Hebron, ruling over the, only the tribe of Judah. Finally, 
by, the, by 2 Samuel 6, he's king over everybody, all over the whole of Israel. David had conquered all his enemies. He'd built his palace in Jerusalem. And then he relocates where God is enthroned, the, the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. He brings it all to Jerusalem and makes that sort of the, both the royal and the religious capital of the nation. And God's throne is there now, his earthly throne. Uh, we're, we're told in the Psalms that his true throne is in heaven. But his earthly throne, the Ark of the Covenant, is brought to Jerusalem with much joy and celebration. And then in 2 Samuel 7, we find David in his house of cedar. He's comfortable. The enemies are conquered. He's at rest. The people are seeing peace. And he's, and he's looking out the window, I imagine, and he's, and he's thinking to himself, huh, I'm living in this beautiful palace of cedar. And God's down the street in a tent camping. Something wrong with this picture. Now do something about this. Let's, I know, let's build God a nice, beautiful temple. You know, something that's so gorgeous and beautiful that puts the tabernacle to shame. Let's, let's you know, promote God, you know, down the street. No, I think this was a pretty good idea. Uh, I think David's heart was in the right place. But God had another plan. He says it's not going to happen according to David's timing and David's plan. It's going to happen according to God's timing and God's plan, God's way. Because the Lord is the commander of even David the king's story. So God tells us to David through the prophet Nathan. You can read this in 2 Samuel 7. The Lord says he's always dwelt among his people in a tent. He never asked for a temple I never asked for a permanent building. He's been bringing them into their land. They're now settled in their land. The Lord has been a shepherd among his people. He's been providing for them and protecting them and fighting their battles. And in a great reversal, he says he's taken David from following the sheep to be prince over Israel. So he recaps all that he's done for David and for Israel. And he's been with David wherever he went. And that's, we've seen that in the story so far, cutting off all his enemies. David's story has reflected Israel's story. And now the Lord promises something new. He says he's going to establish, him, establish himself, his presence among his people forever. No, David, you're not going to build me a house, says the Lord. I'm going to build you a house. Now, the house in David's mind, of course, was a building, a temple. But God promised a house, meaning a household, a, a dynasty, a lineage of kings that would come from David's line, starting with Solomon. And he would establish David's throne and his kingdom forever and ever. Now, at the very end of 2 Samuel, at the end of the story, chapters 23 through 24, God gives us a picture of how he will keep this promise and what this ultimate anointed king will be like that he's promised, who will reign forever God's kingdom. In 2 Samuel 23, David, like a prophet, foretells in another song, actually, that God will indeed keep his everlasting covenant. This is the first place he calls what God promised back in chapter 7 a covenant. And he will send a just ruler to his people. Then in the rest of chapter 3, we see a picture of David 
the king sharing power and honor with his mighty men. And then finally, in chapter four, uh, 24, we read that David is acting like a priest who makes a costly sacrifice to appease God's wrath against the sins of the people. He himself makes a, a sacrifice that will cost him something. And he does that on the, the threshing floor of a man named Aruna, which would eventually be the place where the temple would be built. Who is this king to come? The author is pointing us to ask. According to these portraits from David's life, he will be a prophet, he will be a king, and he will be a priest. So the story continues. For generations after 1 and 2 Samuel, and the prophets would announce that a child is born, a son is given, whose government of peace will see no end. Where? On the throne of David and over his kingdom, Isaiah tells us. They foretell of a coming righteous branch from the house of David, as Jeremiah tells us. That God will come himself, Ezekiel says. He will come himself and shepherd his flock and set over them one shepherd, his servant David. And then the angel Gabriel comes to a lowly virgin and announces to her this, these words, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus which means Yahweh saves. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him, what? The throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. God broke down the mighty, and he exalted the lowly in order to deliver and dwell among his people once again himself as their king, not through a temple building, but through a man who was God and prophet and priest and king, Jesus the Messiah. And Messiah means anointed one. Then came the greatest reversal of God's great story. This King Jesus, the King of kings, to rule forever. Philippians tells us, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. How low can you go? Oh, you can go lower. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient Obedient, more obedient than David, to the point of death. Death on the cross. It's as low as you can go. Therefore, God has exalted him highly and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God and Father. This is the kind of king that Jesus is. This is God's 
forever king. And this is the kind of king you and I need. Here's how your story fits into the story of God's forever king. When lowly, sinful people like us put our faith in King Jesus, when you receive God's word and you acknowledge your sin and you repent and trust by faith in Jesus' death upon the cross as the death of your sin, you too are raised and exalted, Ephesians 2 tells us, seated with him in heavenly places and become, we become, this is how Jesus was going to build the temple, we become the household of God, a temple in, of, in the Lord forever in glory. You get to reign as a king under the great king. You get to be God's temple. God does a great reversal in your story and my story. This means for those who are in Christ, the end of our story in this life is only the beginning of our story with God's eternal king. You know the great saga written by a friend of Gerald Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, the Chronicles of Narnia. At the end of the very last book of the Chronicles of Narnia called The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis concludes the Pevensey children's story like this. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Does that describe your story? Does that describe how your future will unfold? God promised a forever king. Does this forever king truly rule over your story? If he does, then... What you have experienced so far, it's just the cover and the title page, right? Maybe like so many people that we read about and you will read about in First and Second Samuel, maybe your story has taken some turns of difficulty, maybe doubt, disappointments, discouragements. Maybe like David, you've, you've had a good idea of how you'd like to serve the Lord with your life. Wherever you find yourself in your story, I want you to take some time today, this afternoon, this week, and bring your plot line before King Jesus. Right? Bring your life, think of your life, recount your life, bring it before Jesus, and remember how his heavenly Father sovereignly exalts and brings low, has commanded it at all of it, and know, know this, that you can wait upon him Worshipfully, expectantly, for he will keep his promise. Right? And he'll do it. He'll answer your prayers, but he'll do it in his timing and in his way to show you that he is the king who commands your story. And he is likely doing that to prepare you for the great chapter one of living life in his kingdom forever. That kingdom 
that is ruled by his King of Kings, King Jesus, with loving kindness. And so you can look forward with faith and hope in that great story of God's forever king. You can do that. Where he will, you will be with him forever and where every chapter will be better than the last. Let's pray.